You're listening to the Ontario College Podcast, devoted to covering issues about Ontario post-secondary education in general and the current negotiations between Ontario College faculty and the College Employer Council in particular. This podcast is devoted to my personal opinions and those of my guests. It does not in any way reflect the opinion of any employer, college, union, union division, bargaining unit, union local, or the CAT Academic Bargaining Team. You still there? Cool. On today's episode, I'll be sharing an interview with bargaining team members Michelle Arbor, Kathleen Flynn, and Rebecca Ward, where we'll be talking about work to rule, mental health issues related to bargaining, and the fiscal health of the Ontario colleges, among other topics. Hello, and welcome to Episode 6 of the Ontario College Podcast. I am Professor Jonathan Singer, Vice Chair of the College Faculty Bargaining Team. Today's episode features an interview that I recorded a couple of weeks ago with the three first-time members of the CAT Academic Bargaining Team, Michelle Arbor, Kathleen Flynn, and Rebecca Ward. We talk about first impressions of the first ever Work to Rule campaign at Ontario Colleges, about factors impacting faculty's mental health, and about the fiscal health of the colleges. It was a lot of fun to record. I hope that you enjoy listening to it. Now, I'm currently recording this on Wednesday, February 2nd. We just finished a province-wide meeting with the bargaining team hosted by the OPSU CAT Academic Divisional Executive, and frankly, I always have trouble falling asleep after big meetings like that one. Attendance was amazing, including a large number of people who hadn't attended either of the previous province-wide meetings. Who knows, maybe they were inspired by the captive audience messages that the colleges now seem to be committed to shoving down our throats through college email every day for the next two weeks. Either way, this was an informed audience, and I spent my time responding to a bunch of member questions in the Q&A. I was really struck by the level of knowledge and detail that was at the heart of most questions. I remember fielding questions before a forced offer vote in 2009, and the level of member information and engagement back then was simply nothing like it is now. That is amazing. I truly hope that it pays off, not just at the forced offer vote, but also in future rounds of bargaining. Now, Upcoming, on February 8th, the bargaining team will be participating in a forum hosted by the College Student Alliance, which represents student associations at seven different Ontario colleges, and it looks like the Canadian Federation of Students Ontario will also be joining. We'll be doing a live Q&A, talking with students and responding to their questions in real time. And of course, on February 15th to 17th, the Ontario Labour Relations Board will be administering a vote on the College Employer Council's most recent offer. More on that in a bit, and also in the next episode. Now, since the last episode, Ontario College faculty have entered into Phase 2 of Work to Rule, and the College Employer Council has, once again, chosen to escalate rather than bargain, this time by calling for a forced offer vote on an offer that's virtually identical to the one that they tabled in November. They can only do this once. Presumably, if they lose, they will have to finally, at long last, start to meaningfully work with the issues that faculty have identified as priorities since bargaining started in July, if not far before that. What are those issues? They're the things that are in the faculty bargaining team's offer and the things that are not in the College Employer Council's offer that you're being asked to vote on. Issues like improvements to workload measurements and additional time for online instruction. Issues like no contracting out language or job security. 
and an acknowledgement that faculty consent is needed before the colleges sell or share course materials to private colleges. And yeah, issues like task forces that actually have some dispute resolution and enforcement mechanisms so that we don't spend the years in between bargaining rounds talking about issues like workload measurements for full-time and partial load faculty, like equity, like decolonization, only to start back at square one when the next round of bargaining begins after years of ineffective talk. And for partial load, issues like meaningful job security, increased access to the partial load registry, both the ability to be on the registry and the ability to get the information about partial load hiring that you need to enforce your rights. None of these things are covered in management's offer, and that's one reason why you should reject it. Now, the other reason you should reject it is to tell the College Employer Council to get the hell back to the table instead of trying to bargain individually with over 15,000 members, which is what they're trying now to do. Alternately, if we reject their offer and they still don't want to bargain these things at the table, and let's be honest, they've gone for seven months without doing so, the faculty teams offer to refer all unresolved issues to voluntary binding interest arbitration still stands, and it's going to stay on the table after we vote. So, yeah, at some level, that means the CEC has nothing to lose by calling for this vote. But it also means that we, as union members, have nothing to lose by voting to reject their offer. Let me reiterate that. If members vote to reject management's offer, we'll still be a long way from walkouts or picket lines. The goal is to get management to negotiate our issues or to agree to binding interest arbitration. And yeah, pressure may be needed to make either of those things happen. The last seven months have made that pretty obvious. But picketing has always been a last resort, and it remains a last resort. And if you were told that we'd be picketing after the successful strike vote in December, you were misled. Collectively, we did authorize strike action, and collectively we are taking strike action, but it's taking the form of work to rule, and it's putting the pressure on management. Enough pressure that they called for a forced offer vote within a week of moving to phase two. And if you're being told that we'll be picketing if we reject management's offer, well, you're being misled again. We've got plenty of options to try first, maybe starting with phase three of work to rule, and our offer to refer all outstanding issues to binding interest arbitration remains on the table. So that's it for the introduction. I don't want to bore you before we get to the interview with Michelle, Kathleen, and Rebecca. Please plan to vote from the 15th to the 17th. Faculty rejected management's offer by 86% in 2017, and that rejection caused negotiations to wrap up within days, and faculty won most of the outstanding issues that were referred to arbitration. All that we need to do now is exactly what we needed to do then and what we've ever needed to do. Stand together. Stand as one and stand up for the needs of the Ontario public college system in the face of the current threats of privatization, contracting out, the de-skilling of our labor, micro-credentials, the unconscionable exploitation of contract faculty, inadequate time to prepare online or hybrid classes, structural inequities, and the elimination of counselors and counseling programs.
Welcome to the Ontario College Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer. I'm the Vice Chair of the CAT Academic Faculty Bargaining Team. As CAT Academic Faculty throughout Ontario's 24 colleges enter the first week of Phase 2 of Work to Rule. The seven members of the CAT Academic Bargaining Team have an interesting mix of experience. Team Chair J.P. Hornick was on the 2012 and 2017 bargaining teams. I myself was on the 2014 bargaining team. Ravi Ramkisunsingh and Sean Pentecost were on the 27 bargaining team with J.P. But today I have the pleasure of talking with the three team members who are new to the bargaining process. They are Michelle Arbor, President of Local 125 at Lambton College. Hello, everyone. Kathleen Flynn, Vice President of Local 354 at Durham College. Hello, everyone. And Rebecca Ward, President of Local 732 at Confederation College. Hello, everyone. Okay, thank you all. Oh, welcome. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Um, so we're now in the first week of phase two of Work to Rule is now uh, impacting the work that we do of teaching, preparing classes. We just had a province-wide meeting that smashed the record for the greatest attendance of any meeting of Ontario College faculty. Um, but all three of you are from smaller colleges. So I'm interested in learning about what are the kind of uh, member experiences or thoughts that you're hearing about at your own locals uh, around work to rule. And Katie, I was wondering if we could start with you. Uh, sure. So there's definitely a mixed um, feeling coming out of our local. So we are a small medium. And I think that our members coming off of the 2017 strike were hesitant going into this round. I think, you know, where we're located in Oshawa and Durham region um, also plays a part on our membership. And so it's been interesting to watch in the past couple of weeks, the solidarity starting to build more and more outwardly. And I think uh, a lot of our members are engaging in ways that I hadn't seen up until this point. So that's been great. And, uh, you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise, but from academics, there's a lot of questioning, um, which is great. You're getting a lot of members critically thinking and questioning and coming out to meetings now, you know, asking their questions. And as long as, you know, as they start to see the bigger picture, as they start to have their questions answered, it's really easy for them to go, oh, okay, yeah, now I understand what we're doing, why we're doing it. And so I'm really starting to see that solidarity building amongst our members, which is fantastic because that's the message that we need to be sending right now. Okay, Rebecca, how about how about uh, Confederation? Yeah, I would echo some of what uh, Katie has brought forward in terms of engagement and worker power really starting to take hold. I'm definitely um, seeing workers take their power back and having open discussions, asking questions in open forums that, that are, as Katie indicated, you know, demonstrating that surely people are thinking critically about this in terms of how do we make this work? Um, how is this better than a picket line? I mean, I've had that asked a couple of times, which is a really interesting discussion to have. And one of the things I've been really focusing on is the fact that um, it's better for students and um, you know, we're not providing the college an opportunity right now to line their pockets with our wages. 
And so we're also not increasing a level of stress around financial security for faculty right now. We're going to do that as long as we can to get to get the employer back to the table. At, and at a smaller college, we're even smaller than Katie's. Michelle and I actually almost have the exact same, same size college in terms of number of students and number of faculties, although faculty member, although they're um, their designations are a little different. It, it is also a little trickier in terms of protecting folks. For example, the orientation issue that happened this week at Confederation, we only had roughly 14 programs that were doing a winter intake. So only 14 orientations that would be rolling out as opposed to the larger colleges where there might be, you know, 50, 60, 70, right? So, you know, you only have 14 faculty in that situation. And so we are really learning that we have to stand together because if we don't, if there's only 14 of us, we're really placing our colleagues at risk for those that do because they can easily be singled out in that kind of environment. So there is definitely some anxiety. And I'm finding the more we articulate that, we acknowledge it, we create space for people to talk about it, the more opportunity we have to talk about how we can support each other through that. What are the uh, safety measures in place within the system? For example, ops who's standing behind anyone that could potentially be uh, facing discipline and really sending that strong message like they did today in a press release. So making sure our members have a space to talk about the anxiety to also then talk about, okay, so what are we doing to counter that? How can we increase confidence? Um, yeah, so I talked a lot there. I apologize, but that those are my thoughts. <laughs> okay, terrific. terrific. Michelle, anything to add? Uh, I think I echo the comments that the others, but I think it's the educational piece that I'm finding as well and the um, strength of our members together. Like I had a meeting today where we were talking work to rule, like a kind of coffee chat and had a number of faculty out, which is great, asking wonderful questions, very, you know, on point questions, learning about their SWIFTs, learning about those, learning about partial load faculty and the fact that they don't have the work protections that full-time faculty have, they don't have the evaluation factors, those types of things. It's kind of that, you know, if you weren't a partial load faculty, you might not be familiar with that. So learning that kind of side of it, but also the support that members are showing, like there was questions about, you know, testing and it was like people were just jumping on and providing like, oh, you might want to try this. You might want to try that, which we've always been. But even in these times, people are just there. And I mean, very little pushback so far. I think people are anxious. Um, they're worried, um, of course, because as professors and instructors, we always want to do above and beyond for our students. And it's being okay with perhaps, you know, in order to send a point that we can't do that, we can't continue to pull along the system that fails to recognize the workloads that we all have. So I think that's kind of the ending comments that I would have on that. Yeah. I was speaking with one member yesterday who who thought it was utterly uh, unreasonable for the union to suggest in a work to rule context that uh, any faculty member could possibly do their job in the time that was uh, on their SWIFT, for example. And that struck me as really amazing that they felt it was unreasonable that the union should expect that in a work to rule context, but it was perfectly reasonable for the employer to offer just that amount of time to do the work, the designated workload on a continual perpetual chronic, I would say, basis. Mm -hmm. Great point. Now, 
course, we're not alone at the bargaining table. There's two teams. But what's interesting about this round, I think, is that, well, there are 24 colleges, but three of the member uh, of the College Employer Council's bargaining team come from the same colleges as members of the OPSU uh, bargaining team. So Katie, for example, the vice chair of the CEC bargaining team is also from Durham College, a dean. And Rebecca, another member of management's bargaining team, comes from Confederation College. So you've both had an experience that I've never had, which is looking across the bargaining table and trying to persuade an individual or a team, including an individual, of the issues that you spend pretty much, you know, the rest of the year, normally outside of bargaining, arguing the same issues in a different context at the local level. So I'm curious about what's the experience of presenting these issues at the bargaining table to the same people that you're discussing these issues in sort of the normal day-to-day course of your union role at the college. So I thought maybe Rebecca, I could get you to start. Yeah, this is a really interesting question. Uh, I have indicated to our team repeatedly that what I've experienced in terms of the politics of the process of bargaining and the context right now is really similar to what we face on a day-to-day basis at Confederation. So there's not a whole lot of difference there for me. This this is what we typically face. Um, We were met with the same sort of uh, strategies that consistently avoid dealing with the working conditions that we are faced with. We are, we are very consistently faced with an employer that does not want to deal with our working conditions, online learning, uh, inadequate time for preparation and evaluation in general, levels of stress and burnout that people are feeling. These are very consistent themes for us in our local. So that part's not much different. I guess the, the one aspect that's a little different is that there is an element of there's no personal relationship right? So you can't really, you can't go at this from a relational point of view, it just doesn't work. So that's a bit odd. But um, yeah, there's a lot of similarities for us. Okay. Yeah, I I would echo a lot of what uh, Rebecca has stated. It's definitely an interesting experience, but it's it's almost like you're wearing your two hats, I guess, right? Because as Rebecca's mentioned, you're, you're not going, you know, there isn't a personal relationship at the bargaining table. I guess for me, though, what has been rewarding about the experience, although, you know, there's been both rewarding and not so rewarding moments, but what's been rewarding is to have the rest of the team there with me as we speak to these issues that I've been speaking to my own college about and have it echoed across the system. Now I'm not alone saying it to my college. And as Rebecca said, experiencing the same, um, you know, reluctance or, denial or or delays, you know, the same strategies. uh, Sometimes you feel like you're just not being heard. Uh, I've actually said several times to my managers, you know, thank you. I feel heard. And sometimes you don't even get that when you bring forward these issues on behalf of faculty, right? You're you're saying that they're feeling overworked or you're saying that, you know, they're having these burnouts and and it's like, you're not, (laughs) not getting through sometimes. And so there are times where um, just being heard is, is an experience. So I think for me coming to the table and being able to speak my truth. And when I say my truth, I mean, my locals truth, though, what the faculty are coming forward to tell me is happening to see that supported across all 24 colleges, um, and to see those issues echoed and those concerns echoed from thousands, you know, tens of thousands of faculty has definitely maybe empowered 
is the better word for it, empowered me, um, made me feel that I am standing up for issues that are very relevant and very important for not only our faculty, but our students and our communities and our society, because really our issues echo out and, and ripple effect out to our communities um, and to the greater society. So in that way, I would like to look at it as a positive experience that I've been able to go from the local level with these issues and now take it one step higher to broadcast my message uh, even louder into an even larger audience and feel supported by my fellow bargaining team members. Um, and so I would thank each and each of you for that, because maybe as the as the newbie or the the youngest uh, bargaining team member to the to the scene, often I feel like I'm looking to my wiser, more experienced um, colleagues. And uh, certainly, I have felt like yeah, all of you have provided me that support to build that confidence to continue to advocate for my local and now for the faculty across the province. One of the bigger issues on which we advocate. Uh, in bargaining and at our colleges and beyond is mental health. And uh, I, I know it's, a, it's an issue that is rather important to all of you. Um, we're now returning to classes after the holiday break. We're hearing lots of concerns around mental health and well-being, particularly given the new shutdowns and the depths of the pandemic. Um, and I noted uh, a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com which led with the headline, faculty pandemic stress is now chronic. COVID-19 related changes to teaching and dealing with students' mental health continue to weigh on professors with implications for their own mental health. Now, almost a year ago, we included questions about harassment, discrimination related to mental health in our pre-bargaining survey of members last spring. Um, but in your experience, what are some of your own thoughts about the particular factors that impact mental health and well-being of your members at your colleges? And maybe how do they relate to the importance of the bargaining process and what we're trying to do at the bargaining table? Uh, I was wondering, Michelle, maybe you could take a stab at that? Wow, that's a loaded question. Um, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's something we've always kind of done and then the pandemic hit. And I mean, you've got stressed out students, right? On top of it, you're trying to provide uh, assistance to them and support for them, which is is more weight, um, but you do it because you love your students and you love teaching. Um, but that's additional. A lot of us, I mean, I know personally right now, and I'm sure there's others as well that are dealing with remote learning, their kids are not in school. So that's an added stress and our students have that as well. Um, the difficult part is I don't know that there's the resources there to assist people. So we just continue to kind of move along without really doing a check-in to see how we are doing and don't realize like I know personally over the uh, the holiday break I was like I didn't realize how exhausted <laughs> I was and how just stressed that I was until I took that kind of downtime uh, but then there's the anxiety when you're going back right the, that's what faculty are experiencing now right I'm back in it I've got courses to deliver I've got students coming in that are stressed you know and then there's accommodations on top of that those types of things I'm dealing with the home issues so yeah, it's, it's a reality that I don't think a lot of us allow us the opportunity to realize it's okay to deal with your own mental health and it's okay to check in on that and it's okay to not be okay moving forward. I think I'll pass it on, maybe Rebecca or Kathleen have something further, but uh, 
Yeah, I, I think this is like I agree, Michelle, this is a really loaded question. Um, and I when I first started to try and formulate what I was going to say while I was listening to you, I thought, well, I think we should talk about what this looked like before uh, COVID hit. Um, and, and then at the same time, I'm feeling I, I don't even know if I can separate it anymore. It's been so long. Um, and the level of stress that faculty are under dealing with this level of um, threat, essentially, to our lives and to the lives of our children and to the lives of those we care about, including our students, and our uh, collective ability to continue to act with such integrity and commitment to the quality of education, really, like, it is beyond remarkable to me. Like, it almost brings me to tears like it is very profound like my son is 24 years old but I you know I'm, I'm closely connected to many people doing this work that have young children and they're trying to navigate how to do this kind of online instruction for many folks they've never done it before you know and they don't necessarily have the skill or the knowledge base around using software and teaching platforms in this way because that's just not what their bailiwick is and it is not how they performed as a professor and so they're they're having to develop their abilities and skills to engage students whose mental health crisis, you know, the, the crisis that they're experiencing is beyond what we have ever experienced before, um, while caring for their children at home, while teaching their children at home, while dealing with the demands that our employer continually places in front of us. They refuse to acknowledge that our, our workloads are a problem in the midst of a pandemic that has gone on for two years. They are not taking care of our health and safety. They are not actively looking at how do we reduce stress for these exemplary employees that are going weekly above and beyond to ensure student success in the midst of this pandemic. They're not doing that. And you know, that's why we are in this situation we are in today because our employer refuses to acknowledge what we are faced with day in and day out. So I, I would echo a lot of what Rebecca said, but I would actually have a slight variation on that. I feel like they, um, in some ways, acknowledge they see it, uh, but they are choosing not to do anything about it. Um, if, if you look at our emergency response plans, which um, right before the pandemic hit, I informed my college, ours was, you know, very outdated. And that we needed one um, because it was quite obvious to me that the pandemic was around the corner. And so eventually they were able to uh, update that. And you'll see in their emergency response plans, you know, uh, and as all the colleges have to have one, um, that they outline that they are very aware of the burnout that occurs after an emergency. And so they knew it's coming. They know it's coming. They know it's happening. It's right there in their plan. And yet they are choosing not to value the importance of uh, faculty burnout, faculty stress, faculty mental health. Um, and I guess that's what I meant earlier when I said sometimes just feeling heard, you know, or seen sometimes by management. Um, it's, it's sad that that is, you know, sometimes enough. 
because so often we we do we come and we bring these issues forward. Mental health has been something that has been an issue for faculty for a long time. So when you started this conversation, Jonathan, you said that COVID, you know, the the mental health and the stress and the burnout from from COVID is now chronic. And I thought, well. <laughs> Well, I would love to see the data of that was collected before COVID because, you know, when we um, initiated the psychosocial health and safety survey, you know, we were showing that faculty were burnt out and they are showing, you know, much higher generalized anxiety scores across the province than other professions. So we know we have a problem. We knew we had a problem and now we have an exasperated problem. So what are we going to do about it? Um, Because we're at a breaking point. And that was the point I was going to bring to you is it's like COVID's there, uh, but this is an issue that's been outstanding for a long time. And as Katie said, COVID has only exasperated the problem. It was an existing problem before. I mean, we're, we're looking at workloads where we're maxed, most of us at 44 hours, you know, and working way above those on a weekly basis, week after week after week after week. You know, there's only so many times that you can do that type of work without some type of burnout, right? And that was there before the pandemic hit. And there's been limited reaction to the additional time that's involved in the online learning, delivering remotely the new platforms, all of the Mm -hmm. additional tech that, you know, students are getting used to, too. Like, we think that our students are so tech savvy. Well, they don't come in They're Yes, tech savvy but they're not tech savvy per se. So there's all of those additional things that we're dealing with, but this is a long standing problem uh, that has only been exasperated by the uh, by COVID and the pandemic. Now, I don't think that we're necessarily gonna be able to solve that problem of faculty stress or burnout in this round of bargaining. But I do, I do think that there are things that we're fighting for in bargaining that could have very, very real impacts. Um, and I'll, I'll just take a moment, invite you to think about some. Uh, One thing that comes to my mind, of course, is that uh, we have a demand for additional preparation time for courses that have an online component following consultation with managers. We're also pushing for workload issues around uh, evaluation and feedback to get a small increase in the amount of time uh, given or attributed for evaluating essays or projects. We also have some task forces that we're looking at around workload, et cetera. What are some of the things as well that you think that we're pushing for at the table that might have an impact on uh, faculty stress levels and mental health? I think Rebecca will probably speak more to this, but I think that the updates being made around equity, diversity, inclusion, decolonization, Uh, racism is definitely uh, can't go undiscussed on this topic because part of our psychosocial survey, which, you know, showed these stress levels also showed harassment and racism occurring, you know, at our colleges. And we have cultures in the system of education, much like we have them in other institutions uh, that are impacting our faculty and our students and, and all of the employees there. But speaking just to the faculty, I think definitely some of the updates that we're trying to achieve with the committee or the working group to investigate and, and make some progress uh, is woefully you know, overdue. Um, and I think that it's time that we address the fact that this is having an impact on the mental health of our faculty. And like I said, our students and our society. Katie, thanks for the connection. I was thinking about that as well. Um, you know, what was most alarming to me in, the, in the, the bargaining process around this topic 
is the college's inability to acknowledge that systemic racism actually exists in the system. Um, that, that was just absolutely uh, alarming to me and asking our team to uh, demonstrate evidence that it, this was a real problem. So our current asks right now to collect data to help them understand the realities here it is something we are being forced to do, even though we know they have their own data. They know that this exists, but definitely in terms of addressing workplace uh, stress, addressing the inequities that exist in the system have to be done. And they have to be done in such a way that um, there's actually going to be an outcome. We're not going to agree to a perpetual committee that goes on for the next 10 years, dancing around this issue and identifying whether this issue is real, not coming up with any tangible strategies to deal with this because you know, it's not that we we are existing with just that we are existing within a systemically racist system. Um, there's realities that are connected to that. And those realities are not just that uh, racism and harassment exist. It's how it's being managed right throughout the structure of the system that is highly problematic and placing our, our members that come from targeted populations at risk every single day. Yeah. So, so I fundamentally agree, Katie, that this is this is an issue that needs to be addressed, and it needs to be addressed with some very tangible, concrete um, opportunities for resolution, so that 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 these items that that we are talking about and that we are um, exploring and researching, that we actually can come up with some solutions that will have a real and meaningful impact on the lived experiences of those uh, members that we're here to represent. Yeah, and I think it's important, Rebecca, that we tie in for everyone that the thing, you know, the, the language that we are proposing for the coordinators and the counselors, it all ties into this, right? Because uh, the first step to being able to look at equity issues is to have transparency. And so when we don't have coordinator duties written down in writing, we don't know what each person is being told to do for a certain number of hours. And so one of the key, you know, important factors is is getting that transparency so that we can actually start seeing who is doing what, whether or not they're being taken advantage of, or if there's discrepancies occurring, inequalities occurring between faculty members and between colleges and, and et cetera, right? And, uh, and the same for the counselors. I mean, you know, just trying to get a counselor definition into the collective agreement where, you know, we agree on, you know, what the workload of counselors are. These are important first steps to even start conversations of equity. And so I think, you know, it's worth tying in some of those pieces as well. One of the other major stressors, mental health stressors, has got to be precarity as well, uh, impacting our partial ed faculty, right, who are, you know, according to Canadian statistics, generally disproportionately from targeted populations, overrepresented in precarious labor. And I know that we're, we're pushing at the bargaining table for demands around transparency of the partial ed registry so that partial ed faculty can exercise their seniority rights, expanding the partial ed registry so that it's easier for all partial load faculty past and present to be 
eligible to be on that list for seniority hiring and also for bridging benefits, which has obvious health implications, whether or not partial ed faculty can bridge benefits between teaching contracts uh, based upon the promise of a contract as opposed to needing to have a signed contract in hand, noting that many partial ed faculty still do not have a signed contract in hand for this semester on the eve of the first day of classes. The other thing I'm reminded is that we're pushing for partial ed faculty to have access to uh, the maximum uh, possible workload up to 12 hours uh, so that, you know, it is in fact possible for a partial ed faculty member to be able to rely upon uh, something of a living wage and be able to predict that from semester to semester without needing to, you know, reapply for their own jobs, uh, you know, from scratch every year or look for outside employment uh, every, every, you know, three months, not knowing whether or not they'll have a future contract. And of course, one of the reasons that the colleges often provide for not hiring partial ed faculty as full-time is a lack of money. So I want to actually move on to a bit of a game. Ooh, I love um, games. This is our first podcast game. And it is along the lines of The Price is Right. Um, our last round of negotiations ended with legislation in November 2017. And I'm going to ask each of you how much money in surpluses, which is say income over expenditures, each of your colleges reported since the 2017-2018 academic year. We'll be using prices right rules. The winner is the person who comes closest to the correct number without going over. And I know that you've all seen this figure and now you're all trying to remember what it was. So uh, you didn't know there would be a test. So Katie, Durham College reports... Uh, more than 13,600 full-time post-secondary apprentice and apprenticeship students, including more than 2,000 international students. Without going over, how many million dollars in surplus has Durham College reported since September 2017? Uh, the last time I attended a town hall and called them out on it, they said they were sitting on a $40 million surplus. But since then, um, I believe we've had a $6 million donation and actually I think another 2 million or, or a couple of 1, 1 million. So I don't know how up to date your numbers are, but I'm going to say at least $40 million surplus. Okay. But I'm not asking about surpluses. I'm asking about annual, uh, annual profits. So from, from 17. Claiming a deficit. <laughs> So, I mean, really, the numbers is a sneaky game, Jonathan, over at uh, Durham College. So they're claiming that we had a deficit last, last year, year. Um, yeah. and uh, that there was an 8.4% decrease in enrollment, I believe, was the latest I heard. But I also know that the expected enrollment was actually higher than they expected. So I... Uh, like what numbers are you going by? Like I, you know, what they're putting out or what I know is happening or, you know, they, they're always changing from month to month. So I hear we're in a good position right now, but I believe we are one of two colleges that did claim a deficit. So I don't know what you want me to, what number you want me to guess. I think they claimed we took a $7 million grant, I believe. So I want to say, you know, they claimed they had $11 million losses for this pandemic incident anywhere close any of those numbers matching up <laughs> well they're all numbers um and they all end in million which is correct uh so rebecca um 
moving on to Confederation College reports 7,700. We, we, we should go with Michelle next. That's what okay. I think. <laughs> we can go with Michelle next. Michelle, Lambton College reports approximately 10,000 students in Canada, plus at least 2,000 international students in China. And I think those numbers might be might be old. I did my best to, to get up to date numbers. Without going over, how many million dollars in surplus has Confederation College reported since September 2017? Uh, Lambton College, I think, has reported. Well, oh, Lambton, is, Lampton College, I'm sorry. So, that's okay. So, uh, Lambton, oh, it's kind of difficult because we have Sestar as well in Toronto, which is a private college. So their financial information is always kind of a bit of a secret. So I go, don't really know about that. Plus, we have the campus uh, in China. So what I was told or what I believe I was informed at one point, we were estimating almost a three, no, a $1.5 million deficit as a result of the uh, pandemic. And miraculously, somehow we ended up with a $1.2 million surplus. So I don't know how you do a $3 million swing from a negative to a positive, but that's what we, that's my belief is that we had a $1.2 million in the red, uh, basically, uh, after, even after the pandemic started. So that was after the first wave, I guess, is what where we were. So I don't know, hopefully I'm close. Uh, I know our uh, international campuses are a huge influx of funds, and I don't know all the details of those particular campuses. Is there a final answer? I'm going to go with, yeah, 1.2 million. 1.2 million from 2017 to 2021. Oh, no, that would be just the one year, sorry, uh, from 2017 through till, yeah, that would have been just one year. So, yeah, I'd have to say several million uh, because we also have a 20-some thousand, a $20 million other little pocket of cash, to my knowledge, that's sitting there as well. So, sorry, I think I'm, now that you've said that, I'm way off, but uh, I'll let uh, Rebecca jump in. Maybe she's the winner. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Rebecca, you can only put it off for so long. Confederation College, 7,745 students, including 1,748 international students. Without going over how, how many million dollars of surplus has Confederation College reported since September 2017? Oh, Jonathan, this is so embarrassing. We are academics and we're failing this test. I do not have this number. I have the number of $1.4 billion surplus for the system uh, since 2018, I believe. I have a number that I think is correct from 2017. Confederation College in the year of 2017 had a $17 million surplus. I know that in our last year, so 2020, they had a $5 million surplus. But as Michelle has indicated, they play the game constantly. They indicate a surplus every year, and then they predict a deficit. So that's as good as I can do. I don't have a total accumulated, not a surplus, accumulated. Yeah, surplus. Sure. I don't have that number. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Well, so just to offer the answers. So Katie, uh, Durham College 2017 until the end of the 2021 academic year, Durham reported over $23 million in profits, we'll call it, despite the deficit reported in one year. And so they are sitting on a $40 million total surplus. Would they, like, I know that I'm sounds, correct about that. That sounds number, plausible, right? 
and yep. Rebecca Confederation College. You you had actually all the numbers right. I think if you just added them up, you would have got it. Oh, over twenty nine million million dollars wow. from twenty seventeen to twenty twenty one academic years. Uh, Lambton, however, is by far the big winner reporting over $71 million oh in income over expenditures, which oh is remarkable. And again, I think these colleges need to thank mm-hmm. the faculty on whose backs, through whose unrecognized and uncompensated work, whose contingent work or precarious work, lack of benefits during, you know, uh, during vacation periods or non-teaching periods, this is, this is made possible. And also the part-time and sessional faculty for whom the College Employer Council is actively trying to prevent the votes from their unionization drive from being counted. So as was correct, and as we do know, yep, that Ontario's 24 public colleges collectively are reporting surpluses of over $1.3 billion since September 2017. And, you know, again, by law, our salary increases and benefits increases are limited to 1% at a time when these colleges are making a tremendous amount of money off of our labor. So... And it's just, it's interesting to note, you know, when you look at the sunshine list, that, that there doesn't seem to be a problem with management salary increases. Many managers at Durham College, for example, have taken 15% increases, if not year over year, certainly, you know, 5%, 5%, 5% for the last three years. So it's very interesting to see how management positions have grown um, and how salary has increased. Well, you know, our student enrollment has gone up, but our faculty numbers have not matched that. And certainly our, our salary incomes have not matched the, the same projections that management salaries have increased. And yeah, I mean, it's impacting the students, but obviously there's, uh, there's plenty of money in the system. Um, and like I said, even with our current decrease in enrollment, which is again, what they, you know, say they're expecting, but then somehow we always turn it around you know, we are still sitting on quite a, a big pot of money over here. So, and I wish we were kind of sitting on Michelle's pot of money, but well, it's not yours, Michelle, but. <laughs> I wish it was mine. I'm still sitting with my jaw trying to lift it back up. When I heard that number, I was like, so off 71 million is. Just since insane. 2017, he's saying like, that's the. Yeah, that, I know that's, oh my gosh, I, I'm dumbfounded on that number. Yeah. Maybe your managers haven't taken as big of increases as terms. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> so speaking of numbers, one thing that work to rule is all about is uh, measuring and counting time and keeping track of time and numbers associated with different tasks. So we've been asking directing faculty to, let's say, download a time tracker app or keep track on Excel, however fact you choose to do it. We're trying to make employees mindful of the work that they're assigned to do and how much time they're given to do that work and how much time and labor they end up volunteering every week normally. Um, So we've invited members to keep track separately of the time they spend on course preparation, evaluation and feedback, performing normal administrative tasks, and out-of-class assistance to students. So based on your experiences and the experiences of your members, uh, which of those four areas, preparation, evaluation, 
normal administrative tasks for which we're customarily given the minimum of two hours each week or out of class assistance to students for which we're normally given the minimum four hours each week uh, for let's say meeting students in the office or private meetings or answering student emails which of those four areas do you think for your members that they have habitually been volunteering the most time and which do you think they'll have the biggest surprise when they start tracking their time and measuring how much volunteer work they actually do? Katie, go ahead. I'm, I'm eager to answer this one because we started a little time tracking uh, over the last year or so at Durham at our local and making uh, faculty aware of how to you know, use, utilize the SWIFT and calculate the SWIFT and, and see how much time they're being given. And uh, over and over and over again, uh, what faculty have been shocked to find out is how little time they're given for evaluation and feedback. So the number one uh, category that is under uh, represented on our SWIFT or undervalued um, is the amount of time. And I, it doesn't surprise me at all as somebody um, in education because when the SWIFT was designed in, correct me if I'm wrong, 1985? So yeah, okay. So when it was created, um, we were in a different uh, pedagogical uh, movement swing, you know, uh, theoretical perspective on education. And um, we have moved into a, a constructivist, um, a constructivism kind of uh, pedagogy. And certainly um, this hands-on, authentic learning, learn by doing, experiential learning, has uh, taken over the college system and our SWIFTs were never created with that kind of feedback and evaluation in mind. So when the SWIFTs were created, the standard go-to was multiple choice scantrons and you put it through a machine and you know you were given a couple of minutes to run the scantrons and then input the grades and you know et cetera, et cetera. But many students and faculty are shocked to find out that they're still being given you know maybe two and a half minutes, three minutes per week per student for all feedback and evaluation for that student's work because we are no longer doing scantrons. I don't I don't know if anybody is still doing a scantron. Perhaps they still exist, but uh, but we have moved to assignments and essays and projects and a, you know, a universal design for learning model uh, that allows more flexibility in how the students demonstrate their learning. And so we have become much more flexible and open in our, not only our teaching and our preparation, which is a whole other story, but certainly in our evaluation and in our feedback. Um, and it's very individualized to students now. And so that requires much more time than running a Scantron. And so I think over and over again, faculty are saying, oh my gosh, I had no idea that I was only being given, you know, five hours total this week for evaluation. And I spend at least 15, you know, 20 hours a week providing feedback, either through emails, you know, uh, reviewing drafts of, of essays or projects or meeting with students to clarify, reviewing what they've started, making sure they're on the right track, along with the summative rubrics, comments, things like that. Um, so I think that that's going to be the greatest area. Michelle? Lampton? I'd agree. I mean, I think, you know, when I was talking to faculty, it's like they're, they've got this 5.4 minute thing in them. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like you have to be careful there. You have to look 
at your SWIFT because, I mean, the 5.4 is only for pure essay project factors. So if you don't have a pure essay project factor for a three-hour course, you're not even getting that much time. And there was like shock, like, you know, I'm getting two minutes and whatever per student to do it, depending on the factor that's involved. So I think that's a big one that faculty are like, oh, I didn't realize, you know, and how much time, like if we just look at like, say final tests or final projects, you know, there's no way that you're doing that in the timeline allotted. So, I mean, I personally, uh, with final exams, with case studies and those types of things, marking them could be 10 hours marking one set of final test papers, right? So that's that's almost, you know, half a term worth in just evaluation in that one particular evaluation. I think the other area where I'm seeing it is coordinators are also realizing how much they volunteer their time, right? How much there's more and more duties being told that they're coordination duties um, because they're not outlined. And it's not standard across. I mean, there's some coordinators that lots more hours. Ours are, they get six or eight hours. That's the max uh, that they get. So eight hours for a program with maybe 400 students in it versus a program that might have, you know, 100 students in it. And they might have X number of adjunct faculty. So I think there's a lot of that being realized too with regard to, wow, I really volunteer quite a bit of my time. And especially during this past week, because for a lot of faculty, it was 1108 period and not a swifted period so I think that I think we'll see more and more as we move into the swift period that you'll have more and more people being like oh I didn't realize that and preparation I mean preparation too not only for delivering your lectures but it's tests assignments all of those that you do the preparation for that's included in that value so I think people are saying oh well I thought that was maybe part of this and it's like no that falls under that factor so I think it's a real eye-opener for some to the degree of time not to mention our partial load faculty like they don't have a formula so that's another big key that we have to remember for our partial load faculty they get paid however many hours they're teaching in a classroom so if they're teaching seven teaching contact hours right that now includes evaluation preparation student accommodation so like there's a huge exploitation of our adjunct faculty and our partial load faculty on the basis of they don't have workload formula protections. Most of them get more students in a classroom because they can pack them in because they're not limited by the SWIFT. So that's another huge area that is hugely problematic for our partial load faculty um, moving forward, all adjunct faculty. So I'll stop there and see if Rebecca has anything she wants to add. Rebecca, what surprises do you expect that Confederation uh, College faculty will, uh, will will be realizing in the next couple of weeks? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna make the situation have some put it in real context. So as we're doing this podcast, I'm getting messages from someone who um, has tested positive for COVID. Um, you know, these are the realities. These are the times that we're living in. She's okay, so I'm not totally stressed out, <laughs> but I'm gonna try and answer this question. Um, because this is what we're doing right now. We are navigating this is life. I would echo um, what Katie was saying and stress the idea of increased levels of accommodation and how that is affecting out of class student assistant time and evaluation, you know, because we are all committed professionals that 
really do care about our students and are invested in their their success. Some of us are also working with student populations that are uh, marginalized and don't have the resources they need to be successful, right? They're working multiple jobs. They have young children at home. Um, They have not necessarily graduated with the skills they need to be successful because of the educational opportunities that they've been forced to accept. And that all means um, that we work harder to ensure that they get through these courses and these programs. Um, I don't know a single faculty that I've ever talked about these issues with that indicated, uh, well, they don't, uh, they don't have the time, they don't have the resources, they don't have the skills, but so too bad for them. <laughs> you know, it's just not how we approach our profession because we have integrity. So it's taking us a lot more time to ensure student success. And I think that those areas are certainly going to be something that begin to be punctuated as we ask folks to to track their time. And I would also agree with what Michelle was indicating around the coordinator responsibilities. Um, I think people are going to, to be quite shocked with the amount of time that they're putting into supporting students in multiple ways that is not captured on their SWIFT. You know, coordinators being asked to uh, coordinate and evaluate student placements, but not having that as a course assigned on their SWIFT with TCH's eval and prep time just being somehow captured in your coordinator responsibilities. So then you're actually teaching more. Yeah. So so those those two areas, definitely, I agree. Rebecca, in, in real time, let me share my concern. Well, you're looking good right now. Thank you, Jonathan. Okay. I'll keep my fingers crossed. Michelle, Katie, Rebecca, it is a pleasure and an honor working with you every day uh, on the bargaining team and caucus. It is just an amazing experience. And I tremendously appreciate your talents and energies. And you are such valued members of the team. And, uh, and uh, we are all really, really lucky. Everyone listening here is really, really lucky to have you on the team. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a delight. Uh, have a great weekend. And uh, we're back Thank at you. it on Monday. Thank you. Thank you, Fearless. We love you too, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We'll see you on Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. I'd like to thank Michelle Arbor, Kathleen Flynn, and Rebecca Ward for joining me. But I'd also like to thank the members of the local executive committees in OPSI Locals 125, 354, and 732 for sharing them with the unionized faculty province-wide on the CAD-A bargaining team. Please be sure to vote on February 15th. If you have any energy left, please consider reaching out to your local and offering to phone or organize a lunchtime meeting with some of your colleagues. In July, we stood together to present our demands to the employer. In December, we stood strong to authorize job action in favor of those demands. And now in February, we're going to stand together to reject a management offer that doesn't acknowledge any of those demands. We're going to do this to make sure that the Ontario College system moves in the right direction in the next few years. Stand together, stand strong, stand proud. The Ontario College Podcast is written and produced by me, Dr. Jonathan Singer. The theme music has come from the album A Dirt Road in a Dream by award-winning songwriter Nathan Brumley and is used with his very kind permission. 
If you're interested in learning more about the bargaining process, you can check out the page for the CAT Academic Division at www.collegefaculty.org. You can also catch my occasional snark on Twitter at ONCollegeProf, and I have been known to write longer pieces at www.collegeprof.ca. You can also email me with questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, or cease and desist orders at ontariocollegeprof at yahoo.com. Lastly, this podcast is entirely self-funded. No taxpayer dollars, tuition dollars, or union dues go towards it. If you'd like to help offset the costs, please feel free to check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Ontario College Podcast. Once again, if you missed it at the start, this podcast contains only my own views and those of my guests. Thank you both for listening. peanut butter salami peppercorn salami i got a car when i was in university and it was like uh hawaiian hibiscus was the name of the color and i actually (laughs) was in an accident i got rear-ended when i was in the car so after that it always had when you were at like a stoplight or stopped a vibration so it was called the purple vibrator from that point forward (laughs) jelly jelly jelly